Hey, this is Nick Walters with the Industrial Hemp Growers Digest, and we are back with yet another great uh, webinar Wednesday recording that we did earlier in the year with John Strophus, who is with the Minnesota Hemp Farms. John is a integrated grower who not only grows his own hemp for CBD, but he also grows it for the things we focus on, which is the industrial and, and grain and fiber use of hemp. John is a multi-generational farmer and an early on person to uh, actually grow hemp in Minnesota. He's got some great insight and make sure you go back to our website and check out this episode and watch the video because he's got some really cool pictures. Everything from what one of his tractors looked like when it when it uh, melted down and blew up because they they harvested all in a crazy way as they were learning about how to harvest hemp for industrial uses. Uh, you'll get a lot of great info about this, uh, particularly to see a real live farmer and what his real live planting is all about. Okay, welcome uh, and hello for all of you joining us today for our Wednesday webinar series here for the National Hemp Growers Cooperative. Um, my name is Nick Walters, and I am one of our founding members uh, and managing partner of the co-op. And we are excited about offering this series every single Wednesday at two o'clock central time zone. Um, uh, we're glad to have as our guest today, John Strophus, who is with the uh, his own uh, hemp organization, his own company, Minnesota, Minnesota Hemp Farms. And he also is serving as the president of the U.S. Hemp Growers Association. So John is, uh, as Barbara Mandrell would say, was country before country was cool. He, he knows how uh, he is an early owner and has been um, uh, a farmer and uh, is planting hemp for seed and for CBD and for grain and, and can tell you all about um, uh, his field theory brand and, and what they have accomplished and what they are doing uh, at Minnesota Hemp Farm. So uh, any of our folks who are uh, watching and, and paying attention right now and listening, uh, please know that uh, John is not, um, you're not going to stump him up in the middle of the time if you've got a question, right? So if you want to be able to ask a question as we go along, please do that. You can either uh, put it into the Q&A box, which is down at the bottom of your screen, or you can hit the raise your hand button if you'd like to talk live and in person, or you can actually go through the chat box as well. So I'm going to be monitoring those things as John is going through his talk and is through giving part of his um, uh, presentation and is sharing with us his knowledge for today. So John, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Hey, thanks, Nick. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk with you again. And I don't think I was ever cool, but I appreciate that. <laughs> we won't ask your kids. How about that? Right. <laughs> I'm cool now because they're young, but you know, <laughs> a couple of years, I, I know I won't be. Yeah, that's exactly right. Those of us that have teenagers, we can tell you that uh, cool ends real quick, about 11 or 12, just so you right. know, at the latest. So terrific. Well, look, <clears throat> why don't, um, if you will, Make sure that uh, you tell us about you and, and about your uh, farming background and about what you guys do there um, on the farm, as well as the hemp growers. However, if that fits within your PowerPoint or in your talk, then we can we can follow it that way. So I would say take the screen and start sharing. And, and whenever you're you're ready to go, go on and launch. All right. Sure. And I just say uh, 
uh, when I present, I don't know if I'll be able to see the the chats, but um, definitely, you know, interrupt me and, uh, you know, let's get the questions. Yes. Uh, these things are always, you know, I could talk for three hours um, nonstop, but that's not fun. And I like it much better just kind of giving you a little bit of things to think about and then, you know, getting questions from, uh, from the audience. And, uh, you know, we, we basically started knowing nothing about hemp. So there's no question at this point, um, you know, that that's uh, a silly question. I mean, we, uh, I'm asked to speak a lot at, at different events and stuff, but, but really my experience is only five years old. So I'm by no means an expert and learn things every year. So uh, with that, um, let me try to share my screen. So I'll be watching the the, the um, question boxes and the chat bars and stuff like that too. Okay. So okay. you keep trucking. So if there's something that comes up, I'll just I'll just tell you the <clears throat> that we have a question. All right. Uh, so I think you guys should start to see something here any seconds. And then I got one more thing to do. Can you still see me there? Or yes, sir. Me? Okay. We see you, and we see the screen, and we see the we see the first slide. Good job. All right. Thank you. Very good. So, um, just uh, you know, quick overview on me, I guess, from a, a bio perspective. Um, I grew up on a very small farm. We had about ninety-five acres that we owned, and we had a horse boarding uh, operation, and still do today. Uh, my father started this. Um, back before I was born and we commercially board horses and still do that today. Um, I was a, you know, kind of went off to school and tried to figure out what I wanted to do in life. This was not going to be anything in that plan. That's for certain. Um, so I was a marketing guy and in information technology. And I worked for about 19 years for a large company called Accenture and got to travel and learn about IT and different businesses and things like that. And then, um, you know, I always kind of had an interest in agriculture and knew we'd be involved with the farm when my dad passed. And unfortunately that happened a little bit early. He passed in 2008 and we bought out the family estate and uh, most of our row crop stuff was our tillable land was rented out. And we just did a lot of hay production as a kid and stuff like that. So we kind of took all that back and started uh, doing more with with the farm, and then we brought uh, beef cattle in on a very small basis and did that direct to consumer. Um, and so, so I would say just started growing the farm and and you know did a little corn and soybeans, but not significant. Uh, today in the Strofa stock farm operation, uh, we farm between 800 to 900 acres uh, a year. Uh, we're right on the border with Wisconsin, so about half of our production is in Minnesota, half is across the river in Wisconsin. And um, I have a, a farming partner that uh, I work with in that particular uh, organization. And then we transitioned to, uh, about uh, 100 acres uh, of our uh, own land and land that we had long-term rent agreements with uh, into the organic system. And uh, and I can get into that later, but basically my exposure into the organics came by my working with hemp. So um, 
then along came 2016 and you know minnesota was able to grow for the first time in 2016 based on the farm bill i've been following this and i just said i want to be the first guy to do it you know i that was basically it you know i i we were looking for you know like most farmers trying you know we're kind of in this uh honeymoon period again right because commodity prices are going high again and you know we're getting sucked back into the trap but really in our area it's a corn soybean rotation get a, out a little bit further we have uh, some sugar beets and potatoes and then you get into the dakotas and the prairies and you got all sorts of small grains and stuff like that but basically diversification and a crop rotation is not very significant in our areas it's a it's a two crop maybe three at best and um you know i just saw hemp as an opportunity to diversify and uh you know hopefully make some more money uh what we wanted to do was create a specific company so we started minnesota hemp farms and um at the same time uh we created a brand called field theory and i can get into more about the brand later if it comes up but the field theory is a retail focus for hemp food products mostly we have cbd products as well but minnesota hemp farms is involved in uh you know selling certified planting seed um contracting hemp production acres both conventional and organic and then 90 percent of our business is selling processed uh, bulk hemp food goods and that would be hemp hearts, uh, roasted hemp seed, cold pressed hemp seed oil, protein powders, and the like. So at the end of the day, you know, we're we're a marketing company uh, more than anything around you know the hemp space. But um, you know that that's kind of been our focus is grain. We've done some experimenting with fiber um, and some CBD, um, but you know there's some some challenges in that industry right now. Um, people say, why hemp? And I go back to this really old quote, it's 2016. Google said, it's a game-changing trend, plant-based proteins. I think that's 100% on point, uh, was prescriptive for where we are today. You know, we have Beyond Meat, we have Burger King that has those products now. Um, you know, so there's a lot of excitement, just the consumer is desiring more and more plant-based proteins. We sell beef, so I don't want to offend anyone. You know, when I say stuff like that, you know, we're um, I'm in vegan chat groups talking about uh, how great hemp is as a plant protein, and then I'm sending out emails saying, "Hey, we've got five head of beef coming up next week, and who wants to buy that?" So, um, uh, but I, I, I'm authentic because I admit it and I'm transparent about it. But um, maybe not in the vegan group, but right. <laughs> But the point is, is that, you know, consumers are desiring plant-based proteins. And even if you're a, a meat eater, you still might want a lot of the benefits of having a plant-based protein. Um, so hemp fits that box. It checks the non-GMO box. It checks the gluten-free box, um, you know, vegan and kosher. Uh, so really it was a ground floor opportunity. And, you know, if you think about hemp, um, it's been growing for a long time in Canada, but uh, I think the latest stat is that three, only 3% 3 of Canadians even um, have tried hemp or know what hemp is. So tr 
tremendous amount of market penetration. And then that's a food uh, basically approach. And then CBD obviously as a nutraceutical, uh, you know, helping uh, in the dietary supplement space uh, or even the pharma drug space um, uh, with, you know, helping people, uh, you know, improve their lives, you know, having a, a, a health benefit. So there, I'll, I'll do a pause if you got any questions before I keep rambling on. Nope, so far we're good. I don't see anybody. I'm, okay. I'm checking. Nope. So um, a lot of you have probably seen this slide before, why hemp and the uses for hemp. Um, you know, you can dive into all these uh, details and we can parse them out and, and things. But, you know, the point is, is that there's a lot of different uses for the plant, uh, uh, products and byproducts, co-products. Uh, but really, it's falling into three different categories. It's in the the food space, and that's coming from grain. It's in the fiber space, which is coming from the stock, or it's coming in the uh, nutraceutical space, I'll say, or dietary supplement in the CBD realm. And I'm using the term CBD generally. Obviously, we have CBG now, CBN, all the different letters of the alphabet. Uh, talking about that side of the business. But in my view, uh, these are three distinct plants um, from a varietal perspective. Um, and in your, in your growing practices, they're going to be grown significantly differently uh, based on which track you're choosing. So um, like wheat, or oats, you can take the grain crop and then have the straw as a byproduct. That is somewhat true in hemp. So a dual purpose crop um, is possible. I would say, you know, focus on grain and take the fiber as a benefit like we do in wheat um, or, you know, focus on growing fiber. But if you're focused on growing fiber, you're going to be growing generally uh, much taller varieties that are um, higher biomass yielding than you would be uh, focusing on the grain side. Um, this is just real quick on our field theory brand. So showing that, you know, we're food focused and this is going into the brand. Um, and of course we have CBD products and things like that. What most of you probably care about is the farming side of things and the production side. And so I've got a lot of stuff I can share with you about that and, and let me know if I get boring. Um, but really, again, hemp times three. So three different methods of production generally or handling or varietals. Um, this is slides that I use from our inaugural year. Um, one of the things about hemp, and, and I'm gonna speak about this from a northern climate perspective. I mean, we have much different <laughs> climate, obviously, than farther south. So, you know, where those boundaries of latitude and things change, um, you know, honestly, it needs a lot more study. Uh, but from a northern crop perspective, um, and, and even in Minnesota, where we're at, you know, if you go two hours north of us, you know, it's a different frost date and everything like that for corn and beans and things. So um, in the Twin Cities, we're, we're fairly moderate still. Um, but at, at the end of the day, hemp is a crop that you can plant late. So in Canada, 
uh, and generally on farms, hemp is planted as the last crop going in. Uh, so we were late June. Um, we like to be kind of around the first week of June here in Minnesota. And earlier planting will give you uh, generally a taller variety or a, a taller uh, stock because it's a photo uh, sensitive crop. So like soybeans in that regard, but um, if you plant later, it just has uh, less time in vegetative state uh, to get the, the, the height, which from a combining perspective is actually an advantage, uh, but still producing some good yields of green as long as you have moisture. So you can plant this stuff, um, you know, any old green drill, six inch spacing, seven and a half inch spacing, uh, 12 inch, you know, 15 inch rows. I think anything over 15 inch, you don't have good canopy. And so your weed suppression um, is not going to be there. Um, and I'm again, I'm speaking about grain. Uh, fiber would be definitely a dense planting, um, you know, grain drill type uh, of planting and, um, you know, narrow row spacing. Uh, just showing just a couple of different types of planters we use. We had some a dealer demo. Uh, this is basically our setup for planting grain hemp. Now it's, you know, nothing brand new here. Uh, it's uh, box drills, uh, six inch uh, row spacing, planting very shallow. Uh, so about a half inch to an inch in moist, uh, a depth, uh, just into some moisture. And, and the one thing I would say is, you know, unlike a lot of crops where, especially small grains, where you want to get out there and plant ahead of a rain, uh, generally much better off to, uh, to plant um, after moisture, or I would say four to five days before a moisture event. So you have at least the ability of the hemp plant to sprout and kind of, you know, ground itself before it gets washed off. Uh, or has a crusting issue. So there's a high, very high mortality rate for hemp seed. It doesn't have a lot of energy to get out of the ground. Um, it can be in the, you know, maybe a 80% germ. Uh, it would not be crazy. Um, so, uh, you know, just making sure conditions are right is really important. Lots of uh, challenges that Kentucky had with heavy rains, just washing seed away and having to replant. Same in certain parts of Wisconsin. Um, hemp is, I'm a very impatient person, I tell people, and people that know me agree. Um, so hemp is a really fun crop in that sense because it grows really quickly. Um, got a couple, couple images here, you know, just four and a half days. Uh, we had very little moisture right after planting, and we had really good emergence in four and a half days. Um, about two inches, you can see on, on that picture um, on two different fields. Um, you have to not make fun of my planter driving skills there. As you can see, my big gap in the picture on the left at the 12-day mark. But uh, you can see, you know, pretty significant emergence in 12 days. And then uh, just about 10 days after that, you know, you have pretty explosive uh, vegetative growth starting. I'll pause there if there's any questions coming up. Nope, not so, not that I can see. We're good. Okay. And if I if you'd rather hear me talk about markets and all that kind of stuff, 
put that in the comments and we can kind of switch gears all to the farming talk. Well, I think the farming talk is certainly helpful. Okay. So um, this was another field, actually the second year of our operation. Um, you know, really nice, good establishment. You can see there on the left, uh, we actually had this stripped out and had uh, three different varieties in this 25 acre field. And that was really fun to see the differences in the varieties and things. Um, one thing um, about uh, growing hemp is compaction. So as I mentioned, you know, it's, there's a lot of more seed, uh, seed mortality and, and uh, uh, sensitivity to compaction is very high. So you can see all the tractor tracks. Basically, we had um, uh, stunted emergence. In some cases, this evened out over the growing season, and we actually did have germination under this. In some areas, we didn't. But what I'll say is it's it was really fascinating to me, and I've done this every single year, where uh, you know you, you do your long strip field planting, and then um, you might go over the headlands again, or you know you do your headlands first generally for planting corn, and then do your long rows. And with hemp, it's like you would want to plant the headlands last, and the reason is because of this compaction issue. And so we've done you know just some unscientific experiments but at the end of our headlands you know running out the grain drill of seed so just making three four five six passes even over a small area and guess what that is the worst area of the field hmm. so even though you have maybe a 10x on the amount of seed that goes in just the compaction and driving on it um you know, and I'm talking about in dry conditions. I'm not talking about where we're mudding things in and really putting a crust layer on there. It just does not like compacted soil. Um, this one is one of my most favorite pictures because we're in corn country here and, you know, corn growing right alongside hemp is just a really cool concept that, you know, six, seven years ago would kind of be unheard of. Uh, that we have this now in our um, agriculture uh, environment across the country. And just showing that, you know, we have corn that's planted, you know, very early in May versus uh, June planted hemp. And we have basically the same height at that particular time. And then going into August, so this is uh, into uh, basically flowering and pollination is happening and we have seed set that has occurred at this time. And so uh, the plants are starting to put on uh, and develop their, their seed yield. Uh, this is a picture on the left uh, in you know July 30th. So this is 41 days after planting. What you can see here is these tall spindly ones. Um, Hemp is either a monoecious variety or a dioecious variety. And this was most of the hemp grain is dioecious, so a male and a female plant. Um, and so the male plants are here, the tall spindly, so they, they have pollen and uh, they are you know, pollinating the, the flowers of the females and then the males will die off. And People ask uh, a lot about, um, certainly in CBD, we will generally want feminized seed. Um, so no males, males are bad. 
Um, we don't want seed set and grain coming from that. Um, but uh, naturally occurring, it's about 40% on the males. So you see a lot of males out there, they don't really cause you any issues combining. They start to not use nutrients and those get back absorbed into the soil um, after they're, you know, moved on and done their business. Uh, 56 days, you can start to see a lot less males. Uh, they're kind of not in the environment anymore. And you see more of the, the bigger females producing the seed. Um, uniform stock density is another thing that is a result generally of population. So more space gives you uh, a more uh, a thicker stock. Also, the branching effect, like if you are familiar with growing soybeans, you give the soybeans more space or a lower population. Sometimes they can put on just as much yield because they have more space to branch. The same is true with hemp. Um, it becomes a balance if you want a lower population and more branching, which has a combining uh, challenge, versus a higher population that's generally more thin and uniform, which generally is preferred for combining, um, you know, so that things feed a little bit more consistency with less uh, thick stock or branches at the top layers. But even with that, there's quite a bit of variance uh, between this. And I should mention too that these are all AOSCA certified Canadian genetics. So this is not the horror stories that you hear in the CBD world where we have super different variances and, you know, fields and crops going hot because the THC is too high, et cetera. These are certified uh, Canadian varieties and much like we're planting corn, soy, and wheat, you know, the field is pretty uniform across. There's always a couple outliers, uh, but generally speaking, it's a uniform crop. Um, CBD is uh, genetics are getting much better, but that's a little bit more where we have this inconsistent uh, seed supply or uh, off types that happen. Now, this I would say I, I had from my own experience is limited pests. Now, um, I've learned a lot from watching hemp grown and being reported across the country with different people having different issues. Um, this year, actually out in Washington, there was a lot of uh, hemp planted out there and uh, they had a lot of problems with grasshoppers. And I would not have thought from my experience that grasshoppers would really prefer hemp and devour it, but they did. And, and it was pretty detrimental to their, their yields and um, you know really problematic. For us here in the Midwest, I have not really seen a lot of pest problems. I've seen some um, uh, hemp borer, they're calling it, uh, you know, basically uh, like a you know, corn borer. Uh, I've seen some of that in Wisconsin, generally where it's more wet or denser populations. Um, on our fields, we've seen a lot of Japanese beetles, uh, things like that, but not really doing a lot of heavy snacking. They're just kind of out there and they might munch a little bit, but nothing that's been yield impactful. Um, but there's a lot more information now that's coming out about that from different studies that have been done at university and as there's more uh, hemp planted around the country. So that's something 
you know, to kind of look at, but, um, you know, if you start small in your first year or two, you're going to kind of see, you know, what, what's happening there before, you know, you go big and it might have a, a disaster. Um, the picture on the, on the right is in August. So, you know, the males, you can start to barely see them. They're kind of really shriveling up. And this is a really uh, good picture of what a vibrant uh, hemp field should look like if grown for green. Um, here's a picture. Um, this is getting very close to harvest, uh, about 30 days away in Minnesota. This is around September 1st. And disease is, you know, scler sclerotinia or white mold. Uh, those are common uh, challenges with oilseed crops, uh, you know, soybeans, certainly we deal with that. And here's sort of the, the result of it in the hemp crop. You're always going to have some of this. The question is, will it be yield impactful? And just like anything, you know, having a good crop rotation is going to help limit that disease persistence on a year-on-year -year basis. So generally speaking, we wouldn't want to plant um, hemp and soybeans and then back into uh, to hemp again or another oilseed crop. We'd like to get in there with the grain or, or corn or, you know, something else to kind of, you know, give more diversity uh, in that soil uh, microbial level and, and fungi uh, differences. And I'll also say, by the way, I'm not a trained agronomist. So anytime I get doing one of these presentations, someone always says, well, what about this and that? And, and so um, I know about enough as a farmer should to be dangerous in that regard. Uh, but <clears throat> it's like anything, you've got some disease and things to look out for, uh, but rotation fixes a lot of that. Um, here you can start to see um, if you if your screen's big enough where the seeds the bracts are starting to open just a little bit and that that is finishing and getting ready for harvest. What's kind of frustrating about hemp is that it's indiscriminate really as far as a maturity. So generally you're trying to find when it the seeds are about eighty percent ripe. Uh, you wait too long, you're going to have a lot of shatter and more yield loss. If you go too early, you'll have more moisture issues and seeds that are not fully uh, you know, filled out and mature. So there's kind of a, a, a little bit of an art to that, but it's not like you're going through a really dry, crisp crop that you're like, yep, this is all done and I'm ready to go. It still looks kind of like it's growing. And, you know, you're kind of like, should I be out here with the combine? Probably not. And, and then it's probably about right. And, and I'll say too, you know, see, again, the CBD side of this is, you know, a totally different story. And I've got a few slides on that coming up. Um, harvest, probably the most fun time for any farmers, either planting or harvest. Um, harvest, you're ringing the register. So you can see how green this crop is right now still. Uh, but if you look closely, you know, seeds are starting to come out and shell. Um, and, you know, we're going through it because <clears throat> we want to get it off before it, it shells. And we're kind of uh, really uh, working against the stock. 
So uh, one of the most difficult parts of growing hemp is the combine harvest and post grain uh, moisture management. Uh, and I'll touch on that in just a second. But from a combine perspective, the drier the stock is, of course, the easier it shells and gets through the combine that way. But the stock is much more fibrous and that that lignin is uh, is strong. And so that's where you get wrapping issues around the rotor and different moving parts. And when it's got more moisture in that stock, it, it sort of flies through. Um, or, you know, it, it doesn't catch and wrap so badly on things. But when the hemp gets more dry, um, you know, it's like twine and it just kind of keeps wrapping. And I've got some, mm. some some challenge pictures at the end here I'll show you. Um, can be a very high moisture crop to harvest. I would say uh, the further south, the more problematic this will be. Um, it's going to be problematic in in the sense of making a food grade quality crop because um, you have my, molds and microbials that start to grow much more quickly and easily the higher the moisture is. Um, you know, when we harvest corn and soybeans and wheat and stuff, we don't we don't panic. You know, if we have stuff sitting on a truck for a day, uh, but hemp is something that within three to four hours of combining is something that you want to get on aeration so that uh, you're slowing down the molds and microbial growth and you're, you're caring for that uh, cash commodity. But 25% uh, is kind of what we're seeing on, on generally a good uh, moisture uh, level at harvest. Um, it's probably very high if you compare that with what Canadians are doing you know they're probably in that 16 to 18 percent but again the the uh, you know humidity levels of that environment are just much different um, we always uh, field clean our hemp so you can see the difference from what comes off the combine you know uh, first of all a couple tips don't fill your combine hopper plumb full like you would with another commodity because you'll be up there uh, with the, the fork and, and the broom and poking stuff down into the augers because it will bridge uh, because of the moisture content. So generally, you know, half a full combine, you go offload. Also, don't bring the semi out there and, you know, combine 100 acres and go crazy. You know, you, you're kind of getting the small trucks out again. You're, you're getting your aeration and your uh, handling capacity kind of built up so that you don't overrun it and spoil your crop. And I've spoiled a lot of hemp grain because we just thought we could push it and it's just, it works against you. Um, so we do uh, field cleaning or, you know, I'll say right after <clears throat> we're, we're in the field or, um, if we have to run it through a dryer system, we've done that as well with heat because we've had high moisture. So we've had uh, times in, in late September, uh, one year it was 85 degrees and very humid. And we had combined hemp at 25 plus percent moisture and we fired up a dryer, you know, at 150 degrees of heat trying to pull more moisture out of the air. 
and and that was just really not fun but um we were able to do it and then and then running it through uh some sort of screener cleaning system getting all that fine material out before it goes into long-term storage is helpful uh for good microbial and food grade uh specifications uh, each contract and and processor will have different uh requirements for you and you can work with them to to figure that out but um the the one caution is with moving the hemp and it starts with the combine is being as delicate on the seed as possible so you know fat uh slower uh cylinder speeds and rotor speeds uh trying to use belt conveyors instead of augers. Anytime you touch that seed, you're wearing around the protective coating of the shell and you're potentially putting small cracks in there where air will get in and cause oxidation. And that equates to rancidity and spoiling that oil seed. So you can think of it like a split or something in a, in a soybean uh, or, you know, sunflower shell opening up etc <clears throat> i've got a few slides here on fiber so this would be more typical you know the hemp has uh, reached its its full height advantage and so you know we're, we're cutting it down and, and getting it ready to just do a straight baling operation um i you know we make a lot of hay on our other farm and and um the disc bind, you know, is a wonderful invention for haying. It really kind of revolutionized the, you know, the old sickle swathers and the hay binds. Uh, so it's a great, great piece of machinery. It also works extremely well in, in wet hemp, I'll say, or non-mature hemp. It goes right through and doesn't have a lot of problems. If you use a disc bind, uh, after harvest, like we've also done for, you know, pulling that swath together or cutting the last, you know, two feet of the stock and, and getting it windrowed. And then we come with the rake even on top, you know, after that and get it pushed together even more. Um, within about two or three acres, uh, your disc bind will really have resistance and I'll have all sorts of uh, hemp bound up underneath all the turtles of the the disbine and and will cause you know bearing fire or something like that eventually if you run it too much longer um, we do that now only when we absolutely have to um, it works again great on wet crop uh, really really cool actually to run through a field like this and see it all come down but um, you know a traditional swath or something like that would be very good um some people have had a lot of problems baling fiber but we have not um most of the problems that i have heard about are happening with round balers and i don't really know why that is but um we had some people tell us that they had problems with their big square balers we don't have a brand new type of model it's a new holland bb 940a is the model that we used and and you know, we just have not had any problems with wrapping or bearing fires or issues like that with, with that baler. Works pretty darn good. 
Uh, the challenge is usually getting the bale density high enough. Um, you know, it's like straw. It's tough to make a hemp bale over about six, 700 pounds. Um, we're using a three by three bale size. Um, obviously could add some more weight just by going with the three by four or four by four. Um, I like everything square bale just because of transport and shipping, especially in hemp. If you do find a fiber buyer, uh, shipping round bales would probably be cost uh, prohibitive in doing that. Um, that's generally also the problem with the fiber market right now is we don't have a lot of processors for fiber and getting it to the market, just like uh, wheat straw, you know, the cost of the transportation is usually more than the product on board. So uh, we did this for you know, basically market exploration and to make sure we understood how to do these things if, if these markets um, materialized. How are we doing, Nick? We got any questions? We're good to go. <clears throat> and I know you've got a, you said that you've got a hard stop here in just a moment. We don't want to take advantage of your yeah. generosity. So you, uh, you, you roll as you, as you say needs be. I think that the, the, the farming expertise is, is, is particularly helpful. Any little tips and things like that are really great. Okay. Uh, hold on. I got a question here. Okay. okay. So at, a macro level, how do you see the hemp industry maturing in Minnesota? Will Minnesota be one of the largest growers of hemp in the U.S.? Is the climate most conducive for grain or fiber or, or CBD? And what about regional decortication or other processing uh, facilities? Do you see those getting stood up uh, for Minnesota farmers? Lots of really good questions there. Um, First of all, um, I, I think this is probably a good segue into what I didn't talk about. You asked me about was um, I, I'm also the the chairperson for the U.S. Hemp Growers Association, and that is a, a farmer centric uh, organization. And uh, you know, getting education out there, doing uh, having farmers like myself and other farmers share stories and and practices as part of that um group's uh uh you know charter to its members and of course uh, policy and advocacy as well uh we got a lot of policy work to do uh, particularly in the cbd space but um th the challenge with fiber is so i think we definitely need regional processing for fiber um I don't know if those will materialize. There, there are a couple of different groups, uh, one in Minnesota, actually maybe two in Minnesota, uh, a large one that you may have heard of as IND in uh, Montana. Mm -hmm. uh, they're trying to do grain and fiber. Um, to be honest, I don't quite know if, if fiber is the focus and then grain is the byproduct or, or vice versa. Um, you know, and, the the point is is that you know i think whether it's grain or fiber or cbd um you know you have to have some regional footprints and you know the the grain can probably go the farthest because you know we're we're pretty efficient at trucking things from a grain perspective 
we do actually a lot of our processing is in Canada. So we pump that over the border eight hours and we have good uh, expertise there that we have hired to do our food processing for us. Um, you know, fiber, the only thing I'll say about fiber, I don't like to be really negative about it because frankly, I'm most excited to grow it because it's really like, it's a lot like hay in that sense. And, you know, we can make a lot of it and do it really well and it'd be kind of fun. Um, the thing about fiber is, is that the Canadians have been trying to get fiber market at massive scale a couple different times throughout, you know, 25 plus years. And it's really always become an efficiency issue, um, you know, trucking logistics, and then that high-end fiber market where, where China is feeding that particular market, you know, that's, that's long strand fiber. And, and what you can see in this picture is not long strand fiber. This is pretty short. It's gotten mangled by the combine. And then I mangled it again with my disbine. And then I mangled it again with my baler. That's not the type of material that you want to make this long flowing uh, quilt out of. Mm. Uh, but it, it does still have a lot of benefit in the short fiber where we talk about cottonized hemp fiber uh, where you don't need that long fiber. So understanding your markets and how you're producing things and, and what the, the challenges are and each fiber buyer, I'll say stock buyer, uh, because we kind of use the term fiber inappropriately a lot of the time, um, the stock buyers and processors, they have the particular market that they're seeking. Um, the animal bedding has gotten a lot of hype, but anybody that knows anything about animal bedding knows it's extremely low value. And right. so if you compare it to wood shavings or corn cobs or, you know, wheat straw, you know, you're kind of like, is there really value in, in, in growing a high value niche crop for animal bedding? The answer is no, uh, unless you can get higher value out of something else of it. So again, if you can take the grain, capture the stock or the straw, and then get, you know, uh, some additional value out of it, that's a good overall net return on your farm. Uh, but you know, I don't know where these regions, regional centers are going to be. Do I think Minnesota will be the king? Uh, probably not. Um, you know, we're starting to see a lot of commoditization, especially in green at a global basis. Canada has been dealing with oversupply, undersupply, oversupply, undersupply. China pumping processed hemp goods onshore in California. Um, you know, that's competing uh, Chinese product coming into the EU and then getting imported into the U.S. as European grown, particularly in organics. You know, all the things that we have general commodity issues with on the farm, um, you know, pressuring prices is pressuring hemp. Uh, so, you know, I don't like discouraging small farms because I think there is always a place for smaller farms uh, artesian products, innovation, you know, innovation is key. If you can have a value added differentiated product, uh, you know, you can set, you can, you can make, make mo more money than the commodity side of it, but generally bigger, more efficient, uh, operations, um, you know, they can just 
do more with less. And so where you have big plains like uh, North Dakota, for example, uh, Montana, you know, they went from zero to hero as far as acres go. I don't get much very caught up in the acreage counts because new states, uh, new investment companies will be built up and stood up there. They'll say, I want 10,000 acres. Everybody grows 10,000 acres. Nobody gets paid. And then next year there's a thousand acres. So um, I kind of, I don't, I don't even talk about acres on our own farm anymore. I just don't like to, you know, whether we grow it or we contracted it or whatever, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, what we need is a, a good economy and profit for the people that are doing it. And if they do that on 10 acres, that's great. If they do it on a thousand, that's great too. Well, I'll do a quick plug for the co-op because that very question right there about what about regional processing and how's that, I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff that we at the co-op are all going to be about the business of doing, right? Is, is where, where that will be and how it will be and when we'll do it. Now that's a different, different story, but anyway, that's, um, that's the type of thing we're headed for right there. Yep. Yeah. I think, no, Nick, that's a, a huge value, um, you know, banding together, uh, figuring things out collaboratively uh, to the benefit that's what co-ops do and, and why they work well. Um, I am getting short on time here, but I'll just, I'll, I'll hit a couple of these things on the CBD side. Um, you know, this method now is probably, you know, manually planting and things like this, you know, there's my crew. <laughs> this was on father's day. We were planting our first, uh, CBD varieties. Uh, we did it with a plastic mulch, um, which is our first time doing plastic mulch. Um, you know, it was fun to do and watch. This is about three acres is all hell of a lot of work, hell of a lot of work. And luckily I had a lot of this sold about half of it. Um, otherwise the economics of growing CBD, it would have been a total disaster. And I was thankful. I only grew three and a half acres and I got out of it when I did. And then we had, you know, market implosion last year as part of the combination of FDA, uh, ineptitude, I'll call it and COVID. So a couple factors working against the CBD market. But again, there's a lot of mechanical ways now um, to improve efficiency. So you're not out there but doing everything by hand. But again, some of the small growers still, you know, whether it's two acres or it's 10, they have developed a, a demand for locally grown specific terpenes, profiles, et cetera, in an artesian type model. And they're making a lot of money doing it. Or they're, you know, sustaining themselves so they want to do it again or whatever just like some farms want to be commercial honey growers and some want to be artesian honey growers right Same well model. one question we got there was using plastic better to grow i'm going to say that this is going to be uh, a regional thing as well as well as a personal preference from just putting plastic and having you know we wrap silage bales also i look at all that plastic and i'm just like what are we doing you know we're we're in the we're stewards of the environment we just are creating more plastics um and need for it <clears throat> but it does a hell of a job keeping the weeds 
out between the role, the in-role weed suppression, bar none, the best. Okay. So from that perspective, and then also we didn't do any drip irrigation uh, because a lot of this is, is like, I didn't have experience with it, but I had just an instinct that, you know what, um, I, I'm not going to farm in a, a nursery style. That's not something we want to do on our farm. And if it doesn't rain and it, it, it's a bad yield and the plants die, that's farming. I mean, that's kind of was my attitude on it, but mm -hmm. I didn't have a hundred thousand dollar investment out there either. Like a lot of people do or more millions. So we didn't do any drip irrigation, but we did the plastic culture uh, or plastic mulch. Um, if you notice, this was a hay field before. So it was a perfect opportunity. I ran a rototiller, uh, GPS, tractors driving itself, did my, my, uh, my beds and then put the mulch down and then we hand planted. Uh, I went very wide. I think we were, uh, 12 feet between row, uh, which is crazy. You know, guys look at that and they say it's so inefficient, but guess what? I could take my zero turn lawnmower and rip up and down this thing and have my three and a half acres mowed off in about an hour. Right. And, and it looks pretty. We had the governor out, you know, I did things a little bit differently for different reasons, but, um, you know, at scale, I think you could grow a crop in the middle of this and help your weeds. And then maybe you've got plastic mulch, you know, for your in-row, otherwise going for bigger spacing. So you can use mowing equipment to, uh, handle weeds and grasses in between. Uh, must have good labor, you know, the higher up the food chain, the more you got to pay them. But we had the governor out, uh, on our farm last, last year and, uh, so forth. Just kind of wrapping up, you know, revenue is all about, you know, I can give you some kind of basics, uh, hemp grain in the Northern Plains will be a thousand to 1500 pounds per acre clean and 40 to 50 cents a pound if it's organic probably 800 pounds to a thousand pounds per acre clean and the price would be anywhere from a dollar to a dollar 20 a pound and then you know your inputs and so forth probably around 250 to 300 dollars an acre on inputs when you talk about seed and fertility and all that mm -hmm. um just real quick on the market you know a lot of you guys have seen this stuff before this is uh you know advocacy stuff 688 million in 16 uh 820 million in 17 you know we've seen some projections here 21 and 22 probably not going to realize that but but extensive and exponential growth in the market uh once we get the cbd policy right that will help tremendously but also the cbd is driving value and awareness of hemp and remember what i started with food and plant-based proteins that is not going away Right. And uh, I think, you know, farmers, no matter what you grow, you have to be looking at some of those types of crops like legumes and peas and all that kind of fun stuff in the food space. 
Um, just to put this in perspective too, this was in 19. The number of acres of hemp that were grown in 19 was, or licensed, was 511, 511 uh, 100,000. To put that in perspective with Canada, they normally grow around 120 to 150,000 acres. So just a tremendous amount of hemp grown in the United States over a very short period of time, almost a straight vertical over the 18 to 19 year. And, you know, we got an oversupply. Most of that was CBD uh, driven, but it, it can happen again in grain and fiber. So just look, you know, be cautious, find a buyer, work the co-op, uh, collaborate. Don't try to vertically integrate everything. Um, you know, look for where you're going to hit your wagon in the supply chain. That would be my top tips to leave you with. Great counsel. <laughs> and if you want to see a bunch of bad stuff, I'll just flip through it real quick. Wrapping in the combine, too dry, little fire. It's good at good on the campsite, but not out of the back of the combine. <laughs> And then we've got some really good resources, um, you know, around now, um, your states, you working, Nick, with your group and others. And then Canadian Hemp Trade Alliance. This one is really, really great for any uh, fiber or grain production. And uh, just a tremendous amount of information that Canada uh, worked on for 25 years and were the, the beneficiaries of. Awesome. John, I can't thank you enough. Uh, any other questions, anybody, before we take off? John's got a pretty hard stop here, but um, hopefully we got some of those in. Uh, you can see his contact info right there, and uh, um, it's always good for him to be able to, to reach back out. And if any of you have some specific questions, we'll be glad to do that as well. We are... Um, constantly looking for more and more opportunities to do more things uh, with groups like the U.S. Hemp Growers, and, and uh, we see a ton of value in what they do, and we are uh, continually exploring how we, can do, <clears throat> how we can do more together. So um, is that a good way of saying that, John? Right. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, I love the collaboration, and uh, most of what you'll find uh, in the hemp industry is, is fairly collaborative. But uh, as they always say, choose your friends wisely. So that's right. That's, that too. <laughs> that's right. Well, I'm glad we chose you wisely. We consider oh, thank your you. friends. And, and we very much appreciate you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Look, next week, we will have our legal update. Uh, the third Wednesday of every month is going to be our um, uh, legal update with our friends at Bradley Arant. And I think you'll want to look forward to that. And then we also have. Our uh, two weeks from today, we will do our uh, Wednesday webinar with um, the Israel uh, Cannabis Association. So a lot of good info to learn about the genetics and the really cool things they're doing in, in that part of the world. Thank you very much. Uh, reach out and let us know how we can help. Thanks. This podcast produced and distributed by MWB Studios.